6640. 6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher is Chuck Missler, connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. In today's study, Chuck begins his teaching on the book of 1 John, chapter 2, verses 15 through 29. Okay, 1 John. John's gospel, of course, speaks of our past, our salvation, and all of that. John's letters, his epistles, speaks of our present, our current sanctification. And his capstone work, the book of Revelation, of course, is our future. So you can look at the gospel as past, letters as present, gospel as future. He wrote five books of the New Testament. Very interesting guy. Son of thunder, Jesus called him. And as I pointed out, that 1 John, as we call it, it's been called the Sanctum Centaurum of the New Testament, the, the Holy of Holies in a sense. And it takes the child of God, which I trust you are, into the fellowship of the Father's home. Paul's epistles and all the other epistles are really church epistles. But this is like a family document. And uh, it may prove to be more important to the individual believer than all the church Epistles put together. That's a view of some of the commentators. See, life is real. It's a battleground. It's not a playground. And John is going to take us into the realities of that. And if a person is wrong about Jesus Christ, he's wrong about God. If he's wrong about God, he's wrong about everything else. So this is, this is heavy stuff we're doing here. Now, we're going to discover in this epistle there are seven contrasts. Light with darkness in chapter 1. We talked about that last time, previously. The Father in the world is our subject tonight, among other things. Christ and the Antichrist will be touched on tonight and talked uh, in several times. Good works versus evil works. The Holy Spirit versus error. Love versus pious pretense. And the God-born versus others are going to be contrasts throughout this epistle. There are going to be seven tests in the epistle. Test of profession, of desire, of doctrine, of conduct, of discernment, of motive, and new birth. You notice the heptatics here, 7, 7, 7. We always see that in the book of Revelation, John's sevens. We don't notice it unless you look for it all through his gospel. But we're going to see it quite conspicuously here in his letters too, intrinsic. I think it's the fingerprint of the Holy Spirit. There are seven traits of being born again. There are seven reasons why this epistle was written. There are seven tests of Christian genuineness. There are seven tests of honesty and reality. They're not seven, they're six liars, I think, okay? And uh, we're going to, the seven traits we'll encounter, we'll encounter uh, the seven, uh, of the seven reasons and also one of the liars we'll encounter in this session. There are six liars, by the way, and I won't go through all of these, but the one we're going to encounter is number four. Who is a liar, but he that denieth that Jesus is the Christ. He is Antichrist that denieth the Father and the Son. We'll get that in verse 22 in tonight's lesson. And there's a couple of others we'll encounter in subsequent lessons. But we're going to deal with spiritual fundamentals here. All-inclusive commandments that we believe on Jesus Christ and that we love one another. Is anyone here that's new news? Okay, good. A profession of love for others and the Father sanctifying the Son, the love's last word, perfect love casts out fear. These are all topics that are going to be underscored as we go forward here. 
Now realize that John was writing at a time when the very deity of Christ was a major, major issue within the church. And how interesting it is, it is today. The, real, the deity of Christ. Mel Gibson's movie, The Passion, fabulous movie in many ways. But it has two deficiencies, at least, two primary ones. It creates the impression that the, that the crucifixion was a tragedy. No, it was an achievement planned before the foundation of the world. The other thing it fails to do is to explain who he was, who he, who he is. A great teacher, a miracle worker. All, no, 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 no. The God incarnate. He was God himself entering his creation. And so these, the, the you're going to discover that this epistle of John is going to be surprisingly timely for the very times we're experiencing right now. But his words are intimate and personal. He's writing to the individual. He's writing to you. And he has some very specific purposes in mind. This isn't to the church you're in. It's to you personally. Are you really saved? How do you know that? Are you sure? It's not enough to claim that you are. Remember Matthew 7, just to refresh yourself. Matthew 7, verse 21, 2, 2 and 3. Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven. But he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. Many will say to me that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name? In thy name cast out devils, in thy name done many wonderful works. And I, then I will profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work in iniquity. That's a heavy piece of text. But the Bible teaches that Christians can know that they are saved. With my apologies to the Calvinists among you, this says you can know. And you can know before you get to the end. Experiential predestination says you're predestined if you make it to the end. If you don't make it to the end, well, then you weren't predestined. That's not what we're talking about here. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 12, For I know whom I believed, and that I am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed unto him against that day. Who's, do, who's the custodian here? He is, not me. If you can lose your salvation, I have a new name for God. Butterfingers. I've committed it to him. I'm persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed unto him against that day. Verse John 5, we'll discover when we get later in this epistle. He says, These things that are written unto you, that ye believe on the name of the Son of God, that ye may know that ye have eternal life. That you know. Do you know? The word know is used 39 times in this epistle. And it refers to experiential knowledge. Not knowledge known intellectually, knowledge that you've experienced. Chapter 2 is going to open with the same emphasis. Okay, we're in verse 15 in chapter 2. Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Well, now wait a minute here. I thought God made the world and all the things that are therein. We learn in the book of Acts. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. What is and here we're cautioned not to love the world. Which is it? What are we talking about here? The word world, by the way, is cosmos. It's a Greek word meaning to bring order out of chaos. The same root word from which we get the word cosmetics, by the way. I always have to throw that in just to stir up the girls a little bit. We're talking about the world here as a system. The world of, we speak of the world of sports, the world of finance, various subsets. Okay, well this, this is the world system. 
The physical world is earth, and that's what Acts 17.24 is talking about. The human world, mankind, that's what John 3.16 was talking about. Both together is what we spoke, what we speak about in John 1.10. But here we're talking about the spiritual system that is opposed to God. The world is opposed to God. It's Satan's world. Satan's system of opposition to Christ, it's the very opposite of whatever is godly. And that's what we're going to be dealing about with the next verse. So we're dealing with the world system. Okay. We know that the whole world lies under the control of the evil one. I happen to take that quote from the ISV, but that's pretty straightforward. The whole world lies in, the, in, in, in control. Satan is the prince of what? He's the prince of the power of the air. So are you surprised when the air... Uh, puts people into office that you find shocking. Satan is the prince of the power of the air. He's the prince of this world. And uh, he offered it to Christ during the temptations in Luke 4 and Matthew 4. And Christ said, thanks, but no thanks. Because his condition was, I'll give them all to you. That meant they were his to give, if you but worship me. And of course, Christ is going to get it another way. The world is an organization, according to Ephesians 6, and 11 and 12, and so forth. There are four reasons why a Christian should not love the world. First of all, because of what the world is. We just went through that. Secondly, because of what the Christian is. And we're going to review what we learned last time on that subject in a minute. And because of what the world does to us. And he's going to talk about that too. And because of where the world is going. Now the way we're beginning to wake up and realize what's happening around us worldwide, this is a lot easier to swallow. If we were teaching this maybe a year or two ago, it would be probably harder to sell you these ideas because things are looking pretty good. Things are getting better and better, were they? And now we're beginning to realize, no, 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 no. We've been, our whole world has been based on borrowed money. We have people in positions of leadership that are totally corrupt in our media, in our courts, um, a totally dysfunctional political system. No, this is, we're, we're much more open today to this than we might have been a year or two ago. Okay. Unsaved people, whether they believe it or not, are energized by the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience. That's a quote out of Ephesians 2. Unsaved belong to this world. You don't. You've been saved out of it. When Jesus was here on earth, the people of this world did not understand him, nor do they understand him now, those of us who trust him. They don't understand us either. And, uh, boy, we could just go on about this. This is, uh, you know, many people in churches devote their energy to social goals. And I'm not knocking that, but that's not the purpose of the church. We're not here to perfume the cesspool. We're here to, to get people out of it. A Christian is a member, uh, I love, uh, this is great, a Christian is a member of the human world. He lives in the physical world, but he does not belong to the spiritual world that is Satan's system for opposing God. You know, it's interesting, when you read the book of Revelation, 
you quickly discover there are groups there called the earth dwellers. That doesn't just mean people dwelling on planet earth. It means those that are dwelling on the earth. And they're the ones that give presence. The only rejoicing among the earth dwellers is when the two witnesses get killed. And they send gifts to each other. They're so thrilled for a while, for about three days. And then they get a big surprise. Um, But um, no, we're not earth dwellers. I love the way Donald Gray Barnhouse describes our predicament. Saints, he defines as follows, a group of displaced persons uprooted from their natural home and on their way to an extraterrestrial destination, not of this planet, neither in its roots nor in its ideals. I love that. That sort of rattles when you shake it. That sounds real. Our citizenship is in heaven. Quote from Philippians 3. You know, you might consider us like a scuba diver. The Holy Spirit is our special equipment for survival in a hostile environment. If you're underwater, you better be have the right equipment when you're down there. Well, if you're on this earth, you better have your special equipment, and that's the Holy Spirit. It's the only way you're going to survive. Friendship with the world is enmity with God, James reminds us. However, only as a Christian grows spiritually does he overcome the world. Not all Christians are overcomers. That's why there's so much pleading going on throughout the Bible, but especially the seven letters, seven churches, to become an overcomer. That's an option you have, but it takes commitment. Last time we talked a little bit about the four forms of address that occur in the first half of this book, little children, and I like the 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 the, 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 the born ones. The Scots use that in their English, the barren ones. I like that. And fathers, young men, and little children. The word little children was not the same one as the first time. I'll come back to that. All children have been, all Christians have been born into God's family through faith in Christ and are born ones. You can't join this family. You're born into it. And uh, those verses, and fathers, potter, that's pretty, that's those, he used that term for mature be, uh, believers that have an intimate knowledge, personal knowledge of God. They know the dangers of the world. The young men, the Nitskos, Nitskos, are adolescents in a sense. Uh, here they're conquerors who have overcome the evil one. How? Through the Word of God. And uh, they're not yet fully mature, but they're on their way is the idea there. And then John uses little children in a little different sense here, different Greek word, carries the idea of immature, growing but still immature, still under the authority of teachers and tutors. All the barren ones, but some have grown out of infancy into manhood and into adulthood. That's, that's how he uses these terms at four different levels. It's the growing mature Christian to whom the world does not appeal. The things of the world are but toys. Remember what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, when I became a man, I put away childish things. Worldliness is more of an attitude than an activity. It's a matter of the heart. It's not what you're doing, it's where your heart is. And to the extent that a Christian loves the world system and the things in it, he does not love the Father. That's the painful thing that John is driving at here. Getting down to verse, that's verse 15. We're doing pretty good. We've got another verse to go here. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, is not of the Father, but is of the world, in the negative sense. The world system has three devices to trap Christians. The lust or desire of the flesh, lust of the eyes, the pride of life. And that's the way it was in Eden. That's what Genesis 3 was all about. 
when Eve saw the, that the, the fruit was um, you know, to be desired and so forth. Lust of the flesh. That includes anything that appeals to man's fallen nature. It refers to the basic nature of unregenerate man that makes him blind to spiritual truth. He is blinded if left on his own. The term flesh is used here. That's as the nature we receive in our natural birth as children of Adam. Spirit is the nature we receive in the second birth when we become the sons of God. If you're a believer, you are uh, the uh, beneficiary of a second birth. And, um, and that will manifest itself. It's not something invisible. It will manifest itself in your life. You'll be partakers of the divine nature, quite distinct from your inheritance from Adam alone. And these two natures are in you, but in active opposition. You can't cast out the flesh. It's still there. Desires are fundamentally good. Hunger, thirst, sex, and whatever, those are all. But when, it's when the flesh nature controls them that they become sinful lusts. And it's perfectly normal to have a, a, a hunger for food or some of these things. But it's when they're in control that the danger occurs. And everything God says about the flesh is negative. Romans 7, For I know that in me, that is in my flesh, dwelleth no good thing. For the will is present with me, but how to perform that which is good I find not. The Spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. As you said. John 6, It is the Spirit that quickeneth. The flesh profiteth nothing. The words that I speak unto you, they are the Spirit, and they are life, John tells us there in his Gospel. Paul's letter to the Philippians, For we are the circumcision which worship God in the Spirit and rejoice in Christ Jesus and have no confidence in the flesh. Your battle in life is to seek the things of the Spirit and to ignore or reject or control the things of the flesh. Romans 13, Put ye on the Lord Jesus Christ and make not provision for the flesh to fulfill the lust thereof. Heavy stuff. The second device, lust of the eyes, feast, you know, we always say, feast your eyes on this, you know. Psalm 119, turn away mine eyes from beholding vanity, and quicken thou me in thy way. And uh, remember Achan in Joshua 7? He was a soldier, brought defeat to the whole nation Israel because of the lust of his eyes. He spotted a Babylonian garment, and contrary to what he was instructed, what harm could it cause? And that caused a devastating defeat for the nation until that was dealt with. The eyes are the gateway to the mind. What are the ears? The ears are God's portal. Faith cometh by hearing. It's interesting. You, I, I remember reading this many, many years ago, and I didn't buy it at first, and I think now looking back, the writer was correct. The eyes seem to be Satan's portal. God uses the ears all the way through the Scripture. Blessed is he that heareth the words of these words and so forth. The eyes are always Satan's opportunity, it seems. Well, there's a third device, the pride of life. And well, Madison Avenue takes care of that for us. We have a whole professional organization that fans and inflames and, and, and the, our pride of life. And uh, that's a major weapon of Satan, and it's a major... Objective of Madison Avenue. But let's move on. Verse 17. And the world passes away and the lust thereof, but he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. See, the world is passing away. Boy, 
do you realize that as you go through life? You realize that things are pretty ephemeral. Nothing is permanent. So what do you do? Be loosely attached. Don't get overcommitted to that world. It's going to change. Live for the unseen realities. You know, I'm fascinated. Back in, uh, uh, in June of 2005, there was an article in Scientific American in which they basically said that they now understand that our reality is but a shadow of a larger reality. And I was fascinated by that article because that's exactly what the Bible's been saying all along. Anyway, every nation that became decadent was finally conquered by another nation. And there's no reason why ours should be any exception. And I I remember it's attributed to Jim Elliott, a missionary martyr, who said, He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. I think that's terrific. See, responding to the Father's love in in our devotional life and the Father's will in our daily conduct are the tests of our worldliness. No Christian becomes worldly all of a sudden. It happens in small steps. First comes friendship with the world. James warns us about that. The world and the Christian are enemies. Next, the Christian becomes spotted by the world. Friendship leads to love, and as a result, the Christian becomes conformed to the world. And being conformed can also lead to being condemned with the world. In extreme cases, Christians have even lost their lives. Not their salvation, but their lives. Lot is a good example. These downward steps I'm going to highlight here are illustrated in the life of Lot in Genesis 13 all the way through to 19. First, Lot looked toward Sodom, and then he pitched his tent toward Sodom in the, in the well-watered plains of the Jordan. It looked good to him. I'm going to go this way. Sounds great. Abraham said, you choose. We've got to divide up. We've got to divide up. You, pick, you get your pick. Well, I'll, I'll go this way. It looked pretty good. Then he moved. He first looked at Sodom. Then he moved to Sodom. And it, by the way, it's, the text seems to indicate that he actually didn't just move there. He became a, 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 an alderman or leader, uh, a mayor or whatever, because he sat in the gate. That's what it implies. When Sodom was captured by an enemy, Lot was captured too. He was a believer, but he had to suffer with the unbelieving sinners of the wicked. He was there, so he got caught up when they were conquered by, in the, uh, the uh, battle uh, of, the, uh, of uh, Genesis 14. When God destroyed Sodom... Everything Lot lived up went up in smoke. He himself was saved, but so is by fire, and he lost his eternal reward. The will of God. You know, God wants us to understand his will. Ephesians 5, 17. Wherefore, be not unwise, but understanding what the will of the Lord is. Wow, how do you do that? That's probably our biggest ambition, isn't it? To understand God's will in our lives. A benefit of salvation is knowing God's will. Let's claim it. God wants us to be filled with the knowledge of His will. Colossians 1.9 For this cause we also, since the day we heard it, do not cease to pray for you, and to desire that ye might be filled with the knowledge of His will, all wisdom and spiritual understanding. See, the key issue we should face is not whether a certain thing is wrong, good, or bad, or rather, is it the will of God for me? You know, you talk about smoking or dancing, all these controversies. That's not, those aren't the, the issues, the issues of the heart. What's the will of God for you? 
How does one discover the will of God? That's a good question. The process begins with surrender. That's the way you find out, you surrender. Romans 12, first two verses. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that ye may be prove, that ye may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Wow. The Father shares his secrets with those who obey him. Are you obeying God? John 7, 17, Jesus says, If any man will do his will, he shall know of the doctrine, whether it be of God or whether I speak of myself. So the Christian is in the world physically, but not of the world spiritually. Christ has sent us into the world to bear witness of him. And like a scuba diver, we must live in an alien environment. And if we're not careful, that environment can drown us. The world gets into, a, gets into a Christian through his heart. Love, not the world. That's the fatal, your fatal stewardship. Are we going to build on sand or a rock is the question. You hear people say, it makes no, matter, it makes no difference what you believe just as long as you are sincere. That's utter nonsense. And yet it's so widely presumed by people. It's a common rationale to, in, our, in today's world. Is sincerity the magic ingredient that makes something true? I don't think so. If you drink poison sincerely, it will, make, will it make a medical difference? I don't think so. And that's what people are doing today. Faith and lie will always have serious consequences. John's warned the church family, the barren ones, about a conflict between light and, light and darkness. That was in, first in, in uh, chapter 1. Then he warned us about love and hatred in, in uh, the first half of chapter 2. Now he's warning us about the conflict between truth and error. You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Chuck Missler, teaching through the books of 123 John. Download the new K-House TV app to access an ever-growing collection of free resources. Visit the Apple or Android app store or search K-House TV on your Roku or Fire TV streaming device. Thank you for listening to 6640 and for your continued prayerful support of this ministry. Until next time, as we continue this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word.